break 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 Hello, everyone. I'm Rania Kalik, and this is Dispatches. After seemingly forgetting Afghanistan for years, Western media has rediscovered it in time to provide panicked and hand-wringing coverage of the U.S.-led coalition's withdrawal, as well as the apparent rapid gains made by the Taliban. Is the country on the verge of collapse? What will happen, and what do Afghanistan's people want? Here to help us understand all of this is Obeidullah Bahir, a lecturer at two universities in Afghanistan, the American University and Cardan, on peace and conflict resolution-related subjects. He's also an expert on negotiations with the Taliban and a prolific writer. Obeidullah, welcome. Thank you for having me, Rania. So I have to start with what's on everybody's mind. In the last couple of weeks, Western media has been dominated, as I'm sure you've seen, by this panic narrative that more and more of Afghanistan is falling to the Taliban, including border posts with Iran and Tajikistan, Afghan bases, more and more towns. President Biden has claimed that concerns over this collapse are exaggerated. So can you tell us what's going on? Yeah, obviously there is a lot of uh, doom and gloom uh, narratives out there. And the idea is uh, that's the reality of narratives, you know, like you shape them, you get to put them out the way that serves you better. The idea is a lot of times we do forget that the Taliban already had uh, a vast control on territories in Afghanistan, even prior to the agreement of the United States with them or their decision to withdraw. Um now we the and they wouldn't count those districts or territories to be part of their control um, because there would be some sort of government presence within the centers of the districts, but the Taliban would mostly hold uh, the surrounding areas. Since the decision to withdraw, the Taliban have been moving in on the district centers, which aren't that well protected. So the government ne- never really existed there as per se to begin with. So. Um, maybe these numbers are more alarming than they should be. Um, It's just that the Taliban has pushed out the district centers um, and all the government existence that barely existed there to begin with. Um, The agreement supposedly is to not attack major cities, uh, which they haven't done so far. Um, The Taliban are at least saying that they still want to negotiate Um, Again, with the 85% districts of Afghanistan being held by them, this isn't a number that the government is outrightly challenging. Um, Neither is the international community questioning it as such. Um, But you have to look at population division as well. Afghanistan's uh, population majorly exists within cities. Um, And as long as the cities are under the government's control, the government is still uh in in charge of the situation so the taliban are currently saying that they will negotiate there's been talks actually since last night uh about a restarting of the doha talks at a much higher uh level where afghan leadership including 11 very important afghan leaders are going to go to doha and sit with um, the leadership of the taliban maybe even beyond the the negotiation delegation level, maybe at the leadership level of the Taliban as well. Um, And they're going to try and find a political way out of it. It looks like 
the regional partners don't have much of an incentive in seeing the Taliban take over uh, through a total victory of military force. Um, so regional players are also pushing um, different sides of the conflict to sit on the table and try to negotiate a political outcome um, because any person having absolute control or supreme authority over the politics of Afghanistan will uh, be a disadvantage to uh, major regional players. So the more it is mixed, the more that the power is balanced out, the more the regional partners will feel safe, like their stakes and their interests are well represented in the coming Afghanistan. You know, from the outside, it appears as though there is a kind of U.S.-backed coup by the Taliban against the U.S.-backed government. Now, you did your postgraduate degree on the subject of the negotiations with the Taliban. Do you think this deal was badly negotiated? And if so, why? Well, this deal was horrendously negotiated uh, because of a lot of very fundamental things that were missing initially. There is absolutely no leverage. Uh, the United States, by putting a ticking um, timer on the negotiation process, which was uh, the Trump presidency coming to an end, meant that it was just rushing into everything. And the Taliban sensed that. Um, the idea that at a time where the Taliban were posing as an alternative government or a government in waiting um, to replace the current Republic of Afghanistan, uh, the Americans choosing to sit down with them face to face gave them um, much needed legitimacy and sort of like took away a lot of the international legitimacy of the Republic as well. Um, it reinforced the Taliban's conviction that the government was nothing more than a puppet regime that could be ignored, um, which even drives their hesitancy towards negotiating with the uh, Republic even now. Um, so there were a lot of things wrong. There was uh, a lot of the appendages that were never released meant that partners uh, here in Kabul never knew what the Americans had agreed with the um, Taliban over. So, um, so yeah, and, and then the absolute absence of a future plan meaning if Khalil Zad, um, the special envoy to uh, Afghanistan, uh, if he had a vision of how the intra-Afghan negotiations after uh, the signed agreement between the US and the Taliban was supposed to go and look like, he either got it extremely wrong or he never even had a plan, which is why we see the extreme stalemate uh, in the negotiation process. Uh, again, the longer we get stuck on the idea of negotiations, the more it takes from the war capital of the government because the government cannot keep fighting with the same amount of conviction when uh, some of its uh, capital and energy is being spent on the idea of negotiating. Um, whereas the insurgency really can split into two groups with a Qatar existence that purely cares about negotiations uh, and an active military presence within Afghanistan. So um, we really need a cutthroat uh, decision um, and, and uh, conditions that lead the Afghan government and the international community to really decide what they want to do about the current Taliban insurgency. Um, so right now being stuck between two worlds is uh, not getting us anywhere.
Why is it that the Afghan army appears to be collapsing if, as Biden says, it has 3,000, 300,000, sorry, well-armed soldiers? Okay, so uh, the units of the army are obviously divided into different structures. The commandos are currently leading the actual fighting um, in the tougher districts. Uh, there are a few things that we have to keep in mind. Uh, one of the first things is that uh, the numbers reported are very often reported on the side of the government, the casualties of the government, the civilians. Um, very rarely do we ha hear uh, tangible reports about how many Taliban have been killed. And obviously, the sensationalism of uh, an official army's losses uh, gets on the TV screens and news networks much faster than the casualties of the Taliban do. Um, this fight is obviously taking a toll on them as well. It would be impossible, um, illogical to imagine that they aren't suffering to this fighting. Um, the idea is, yes, the Taliban have a certain advantage because they've been building up this religious legitimacy um, of themselves. Uh, where they themselves, by virtue of being mullahs, by being religious scholars, and or Taliban, meaning religious um, st school students, um, they carry this uh, flag of uh, religious legitimacy, which hasn't really been challenged by the government for a very long time, even though now they're trying to, but probably is too late. There's also this idea that after the unconditional withdrawal of the United States, it's sort of uh, reinforced or strengthened the narrative of the Taliban that they had defeated the world hegemon. And obviously, when you're riding on such momentum, um, it means the spirits are really high on your end compared to um, on the Afghan military side. The Afghan military obviously has is facing specific issues, including um, uh, tactical supplies not reaching on time, uh, salaries of the Afghan soldiers not being dispersed, um, lack of an overall strategy. So all of those are issues on the Afghan side. Um, and the idea that the Taliban are using social media very effectively, where they're giving, they're using uh, messaging uh, to inform soldiers that surrender too is a very safe option. That's why we've seen the surrender of troops across Afghanistan. Um, but no, that doesn't mean that the government will collapse. I think the U.S. intelligence agency assessment of a collapse was very ill-timed, very immature, uh, and probably even factually inaccurate because, uh, um, again, they don't have access to that kind of information on the ground and such um, a prediction sort of becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy when it's coming from uh, the U.S., so rather than helping the Afghan Republic, they end up um, supporting the Taliban narrative of an impending victory, uh, which is quite dangerous and, frankly speaking, very irresponsible. Obedullah, can we talk about the Taliban as a unified organization or are there divisions between the political wing negotiating in Doha and the fighters on the ground? Okay, um, that's quite an interesting question, actually. Uh, people like Antonio Gustuzzi back in the early uh, 2000s have uh, come up and said that um, the Taliban are not a homogenous group, uh, or, or even if they are a homogenous group, the insurgency overall was very fluid in nature, meaning groups keep 
individuals kept changing alliances based on uh, the contracts or the projects or the missions that they were on, um, more like contractors. Uh, so that being said, the uh, Taliban movement as well, if you look at most of their prisoners, their dossiers are very messy because um, most Taliban fighters have been fought um, or caught um, attempting uh, different attacks for Al-Qaeda and for other groups. So those dossiers are uh, confusing because these people don't hold specific allegiances. Um, right now, it does appear to be a certain disconnect between the higher leadership and the actual forces that are fighting on the ground. Uh, the Taliban have been very strategic with regards to uh, maintaining a certain level of authority and control over these people, which meant that they kept shuffling governors and um, across regions to make sure that no one stayed at a specific place too long. Um, the Taliban governors, the Taliban commanders are constantly moved around Afghanistan to make sure that they themselves don't become very important, whereas the whole movement um, is the uh, pivot. Um, there are certain statements by reporters saying that uh, the negotiating teams in Qatar have asked how the Taliban within Afghanistan are, what they do, what they look like, and vice versa, which, can, which is a sign of a certain disconnect between those fighting and the political entities. Um, and it can also be seen by the fact that now it appears with the Taliban developing the sense of a uh, victory close by. Uh, the fighters seem to not really be interested in any um, idea of a political settlement, despite the negotiating team trying to work for it. So even if the Taliban do sign a peace settlement, it would be um, interesting to see whether the actual fighters uh, do obey those orders or not. Do you think the Taliban actually want to seize control of Kabul and the rest of Afghanistan? I think there is an incongruence uh, between the idea of what uh, the Taliban were expected to do and what they are actually doing. Um, the, the question that you asked about their control and homogenous nature and uh, the idea is with, with, with the very... Um, it's very semi-homogenous structure and control right now. And um, you can see that by the recent video that actually came out yesterday where the Taliban um, almost uh, a month ago uh, uh, surrounded uh, 22 uh, Afghan commandos in Faryab province, uh, including someone that I personally knew. Um, and once they fought till their last bullet, uh, they were asked to surrender. They walked out and the video was released on CNN just yesterday. A video that had been out before um, shows uh, the Taliban forces shooting at unarmed uh, commandos, executing them basically on spot. Um, it's such situations that today in the morning, the Taliban have officially denied um, that video, and I don't understand how you deny a video, but they've said that it might actually be um, a doctored uh, footage, which is very unlike, but uh, it just shows you that uh, 
the control and what is being dictated from the top isn't very often followed on the ground. Um, and they're taken by the fervor of the fighting, um, the craze of it. Uh, and they do tend to not follow the rules. Um, and honestly, when you are fed this idea that your enemy is basically the worst possible being, it really does uh, make right everything that you do to them, which is problematic. Um, so the Taliban leadership um, was expected to add pressure, I think, with the recent um, disclosure of the idea that the United States and the Taliban had agreed uh, that the Taliban would not push for the cities and instead uh, take control of um, the rural areas until an actual negotiated outcome um, came about. Uh, but it looks like that uh, the Taliban or the actual fighters on the ground are keen on pushing on cities. Maybe they're just waiting for the foreign troops to completely withdraw. Um, and then they're going to try their luck right now. The Taliban are making sure that they aim for the low-hanging fruits. They take territory that is easy to take um, because they don't want to uh, hurt their own morale by losing major battles. Um, but that might change and they might actually try and take over um, important territories, because at the end of the day, them holding uh, districts and cutting off Afghanistan from their neighbors and uh, controlling border passings is already choking uh, uh, the republic. So um, it, it does seem like they don't really care about the eventual outcome as long as uh, they find a way to power. So... You know, the last time they were in charge, the Taliban provided very little in terms of services. And in the last 20 years, they have only provided very basic security and maybe justice, if you can call it that. Does the Taliban have a vision for governance and do they have the ability to govern? I uh... Look, the idea is that they, um, the Afghan government has horrendously failed as well at uh, providing services and governing, especially in rural areas of Afghanistan. And you could blame the Taliban for making those areas so insecure that, um, that the government couldn't really provide services there. Um, the Taliban's strong suits have always been the judiciary um, and the general policing security that they've provided, um, the justice and security. Beyond that, I think um, the Taliban have a newer generation. Uh, the leadership's uh, newer generation has studied abroad, um, including members of the Taliban that uh, were here before 2001. Um, during this fighting, um, they have developed a generation of educated youngsters. Maybe they will come into power and have a different vision. Maybe the Taliban will work in coalition with other um, groups that share specific ideologies with them um, that can uh, take part in the legislative process. It appears that the Taliban isn't too keen on uh, governance to begin with, uh, with regards to the um, nitty gritties of it, um, that the Taliban even now are demanding that the presidency and the security uh, structure of Afghanistan be handed over to them. 
and they don't really care if everything else is handled by someone else. Um, so capacity-wise, maybe they are not the best equipped uh, for uh, governing. Um, but uh, uh, looking at the current situation, whether through a political settlement or through the use of force, they do seem like people who will come to power. So we will have to see if, uh, uh, if, if they can manage to. Um, I'm not too hopeful, though. So there are increasing reports of militias being formed to fight the Taliban. How big is this phenomenon? And do you think it can provide stability or does it threaten to renew civil war? Actually, the government has been going around contacting different uh, militia groups uh, within provinces and districts and offering to arm them. Uh, this isn't just the government. Uh, these are external actors as well that are taking part in the process. Uh, they are distributing weaponry by the thousands amongst groups um, in return for promises to defend districts. And the government has been appointing governors and, um, and so on and so forth based on that strategy. Again, uh, militia formation might present short-term success, but in the long run, it undermines the rule of law, it undermines the government's own sovereignty. Um, it's a drowning man's act, uh, which should be avoided. Uh, the idea is that uh, the intensity of the fighting should not make us forget uh, our principles or who we are. Um, there has been instances where the government has picked up people, uh, dissidents who have criticized the government, which I think is the worst possible thing that uh, an elected government could do because we need to be different than the Taliban because we were trying to preserve the gains made in the past 20 years. And if the government itself is undermining and ignoring those gains, then how can we expect any better from the Taliban? So um, circumstances should not justify a change in our behavior or compromises on our principles. Um, so um, no, militia making never works. Militia making um, is a short-term solution. Um, and uh, it's just pitting more and more groups against the Taliban, um, groups that probably don't have that sort of conviction to begin with, um, group, groups that will eventually give up very soon. And the same weaponry that you have given to them will fall in the hands of the Taliban. So it's probably not a very well thought through strategy to begin with. Likewise, is there a threat of Afghans losing confidence in the government and turning to ethnic militias? Uh, there have been uh, popular uprisings. There have been local populations that just stood up and uh, chose to defend themselves. They have been portrayed to uh, be standing by the government. However, I think that they shouldn't be confused uh, people standing to fight the government shows uh, their um, hatred or their sentiments towards the Taliban, which does not necessarily mean that they are doing that in support of the current government. Um, they are doing it to protect and preserve uh, their way of life and their, um, their control over their territories. Um, the problem here is that the Afghan society has gotten very polarized uh, the uh, gains that were made were made in very specific pockets of 
major cities, uh, the rural areas never actually got to see much development, be it infrastructure-wise, institution-wise, and general uplifting of um, of uh, quality of life. So uh, those people really don't understand what it is that everyone is fighting to defend, uh, what democracy's value truly is. Uh, all that they have seen is government officials act as crooks and corrupt um, individuals coming in and rent-seeking from them, uh, something that at least the Taliban never did. So um, they never got to see the good parts of democracy. They only got to see the uglier bits of it. So um, the rural areas never really became part of the democratic process. So uh, even when they are going to lose the republic or if that ever happens, uh, they wouldn't feel like they've lost much. Now, you know, while all Afghans are vulnerable, given the situation in the country, it appears that Shias are especially being targeted. Are the Taliban hostile to Shias? Look, there are two things to consider here, okay? The first is that the Taliban have evolved in their stance on the Shia community. Uh, we see there the recent support that Iran as a government provides them that is contingent on the idea that they show certain leniency towards Shia populations. There have been instances where they've nominated Shia governors um, in areas that they control. All of those are improvements on their mostly when attacks on Shias have occurred. They have claimed that it wasn't by them. That's ISIS and so on and so forth. Um, but with all of that being said, the second point to note is that even though it might not be an official stance by the Taliban, there are two subsections to this that include, one, the Taliban don't have the same amount of control on everyone on the battlefield. So a lot of times people do act out of line, um, like we noticed the uh, commando situation, which the Taliban officially would deny, um, but it would be an act committed by their commanders. On the second section of that point, the idea is that whenever such high-intensity fighting happens within a country, you see groups uh, making use of it, making use of the vacuum, which means that groups like ISIS and other groups that would specifically target uh, Shia and Hazara minorities uh, would find an opportunity and a footing to conduct themselves um, even just Yesterday, I think, a clip was released of uh, an alleged Talib fighter who goes up to a random person, a random person, and asks them, are you Hazara? And the moment they say yes, they are executed on spot. So um, these things are happening, and they're going to happen at a much larger scale. And this isn't the first time that such things are happening in Afghanistan. Uh, whenever the security situation is bad, uh, the weakest is the, in the first line of fire. Um, and there are genuine fears that the Hazaras might uh, bear the brunt of uh, the harm when the fighting actually gets to the major cities. Obedullah, do you think that Pakistan has lost its influence over the Taliban? I think the Taliban are not the same Taliban that they were 20 years ago with regards to their dependence on foreign uh, sponsors. There was a time when the Taliban's uh, major salaries were being issued for them from abroad. Uh, now the Taliban we see with regards to their annual budget of something close to $1.4 billion is mostly generated from within Afghanistan 
uh, and they do not depend solely on a single uh, sponsor state and they have different patrons uh, which is probably why we see um, statements uh, by Pakistani authorities that are in complete contradiction with what the Taliban are actually doing on the ground. Uh, the Pakistanis even logically would be harmed by an outright civil war. They would be in danger of a complete Taliban takeover because the Taliban takeover means um, creating spaces for groups on uh, Pakistan and the Baluchi liberation um, army groups finding uh, safe haven within Afghanistan. Uh, that is not something uh, that Pakistan would want. Pakistan would not want to uh, make India fear um, the scale of their influence within Afghanistan so that India does not try to react in kind um, and destabilize Pakistan and Pakistani interests in return. Uh, so, yeah, it does appear like the Taliban have a much larger agency than they did before. Um, and that is due to their uh, multiple number of patrons and mostly being dependent on funding from within Afghanistan, which is purely based on taxation, rent seeking um, and uh, the drug industry. So um, it, it is very likely that the Pakistani authorities do not have the same amount of control over the Taliban anymore. Can you imagine a stable and unified Afghanistan? And what would it take to get there? I, I don't imagine seeing a stable Afghanistan in the short term, because right now we see the Afghan elites um, having huge differences over their idea of what a political settlement or a roadmap for peace looks like. On the other end, we see the Taliban where even the moderates who did seem to uh, want to pursue peace um, be muffled out and not be heard anymore. So it does appear like we are going to have continued spells of fighting. Um, my hope is and my assessment is that this will reach uh, an epitome uh, and a higher point after which we will start moving towards a stalemate once the stalemate lasts long enough and it becomes a mutually hurting stalemate, both parties would have an incentive to sit down and negotiate. Right now, everything is in the air and it will probably take a miracle for any political settlement to come out of it. And is there a positive role to be played by neighbors such as Iran, China and Russia? So we've seen the Afghan government recently reach out to countries like um, Russia and China and asking them to support the Republic against the Taliban. Um, China has played a very passive role in the region. So I think grouping it with others that have had a very active role within Afghanistan, like Iran and Russia, would be unfair. Um, China is going to just follow whatever policies that Pakistan has for Afghanistan. On the other end, Russia and Iran... Uh, could do more, they could uh, use their influence on the Taliban group to push them to honestly negotiate um, and find a political settlement. Um, they could also threaten them with uh, cutting off uh, support to the group in case they do not follow specific standards. Um, and 
beyond everything, the United States can use their pressure on these countries uh, to push them um, and, and create a regional consensus. The idea is the unconditional withdrawal and the rushed nature of it meant that the United States never did any regional homework to create a consensus to show everyone in the region that their interests are going to be preserved in the coming political order of Afghanistan. And since that didn't happen, um, we see everyone being stuck in a, an extreme state of mistrust and a prisoner's dilemma where they think that any outcome in Afghanistan that isn't completely in their favor is going to be against them. So the very zero-sum mentality in the region. Um, so there needs to be uh, a positive role played by a mediator, a facilitator that um, shows all those regional partners that uh, there is a world where everyone can cooperate and Afghanistan can become a country um, that should not serve as a geostrategic battleground um, between these regional partners. Um, so obviously there is, everyone needs to do more. It's not just the region, internationally, globally, even within Afghanistan. Afghanistan has changed since 2001, uh, with the population becoming more urban, educated, even globalized, thanks to the internet and mobile phones and trade and international organizations. Can you tell us more about how the population has changed and what they want? I think it is an unfair generalization if we uh, box all of the population, black box them and say the population want this. Like I said earlier, the Afghan population is still divided into urban and rural populations. Uh, the urban populations have seen a drastic change in their lives with regards to their educations, their exposure, um, and uh, their general uh, quality of life, but that hasn't seeped through to rural areas. That's why the rural areas did become very good breeding grounds for future Taliban fighters. The idea is that Ashraf Ghani, the resident Ashraf Ghani, he did talk about um, his approach of basic needs being addressed uh, as to dry out the well of uh, possible recruits for the insurgency. That never managed to happen. Um, and uh, that's why we have two different worlds. We have people within the cities that do not really see much change in their lives in the past 20 years, whereas we see urban populations that are really at risk of losing everything that has become their identity in the past 20 years uh, through a change political order if it is... Um, if it uh, hurts them, uh, then for, for them, it does become more often an existential threat, but it isn't the same amount of threat for rural populations. And, you know, where are you from in Afghanistan, Obedullah? Can you tell us how your town has changed since the Americans invaded and the Taliban were overthrown? Um, so... My village is uh, called, uh, actually, the Afghanistan has a very weird naming mechanism. So apparently the village is called Ambarwan, and within the Ambarwan is like three split villages. There's the upper village, the middle village, and the lower village. Um, so it's in the south. It's in Paktika, which is very close to the Pakistani border as well. Um, I haven't seen my village yet. I've been wanting to go, but the security situation would not allow me uh, to go there. Um, 
my cousins who grew up with me and grew in grew up in exile and never got to see the village recently visited and their opinion was that it was a village that was stuck uh or had time time traveled uh, 40 years ago and it was still there and so nothing has changed in those villages they're still living in those same mud houses uh they're still living um with the very with the complete absence of basic facilities um and that's the reality of a lot of villages in afghanistan not much has changed other than individuals that do move to the larger cities and um and find a new life or a uh, higher education but these villages really haven't changed much since the times of our fathers um and maybe that's one reason why uh, the insurgency did find footing because remember um there's actual studies that show that insurgencies um are more successful in places where the state is fragile where uh, there's an absence of uh, basic facilities and um basic needs um and and that's the reality of most of afghanistan you go there you will see that you have um traveled back a few decades in time um and so no they haven't really seen much change in their lives maybe the only change they would have seen is some contractor coming to them and saying i will buy more of your cows because there is some need uh, of meat for uh the military forces close by and that's it uh no one has gone in and built uh, infrastructure for them maybe uh partially within um district centers uh but not these rural villages and rural areas they haven't really seen much in the past 20 years now you teach at the american university in afghanistan and it has been attacked before are you worried about your future do you feel safe I mean our classes are online so the only way they can attack me is through a cyber attack. Uh, <laughs> It's a good point. I don't I don't think they're 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 not modern enough to execute that. Um <laughs> but uh, yeah the university has been attacked before the university takes its security very seriously now. Um and um there obviously is worries about what the future holds because if a truly a Taliban run regime comes to power whether they would be able to accommodate such institutes um is a concern even beyond that the idea that um people who are trying to give impartial opinion with regards to the war and the current situation in Afghanistan have been targeted before um so these are, are very real security threats uh, we are uh here in Afghanistan losing friends and family members on a daily basis to this fighting Uh, it's just uh, we might appear very desensitized but it does um there is a collective trauma that is taking shape within us um and we haven't healed we haven't healed for the past from the past 3 4 wars that we've had let alone this two decade long uh war that now exists um so it's about time that the afghans get a break it's about time the afghans are let to themselves uh to find their own path um and find a way to reconcile with their past and find a way to their future. I I've taken up a lot of your time so I promise we're getting to the end here but I'm curious how do you respond to these American generals that we see on television in the US quite often um saying that we need to stay in Afghanistan. Um 
because, you know, without the U.S., Afghanistan is going to completely collapse. What is your response to that attitude? I take issue with a lot of uh, attitudes uh, from the U.S. There are two extremes. One is ex extreme exclusiveness uh, of responsibility. We see Biden saying, well, we didn't go there to nation build. We just went to kill some people and we're out, uh, which is quite unfair um, to Anastan and to everything that they built. Because even if they chose to or, or want to see themselves as people who didn't come here to nation build, the whole system was designed in their image in which now the Taliban say, we want to take down the system because it's the West system. So whatever damage we are incurring or the system is incurring right now is purely based on um, or solely the responsibility of the United States as well, uh, because it is by association with them that they are fighting the current regime, right? Um, so there's that extreme attitude, which is extremely unfair towards Afghanistan and towards the future of Afghanistan, towards the gains or the whatever has been achieved in the two decades, towards democracy in general, um, the United States was supposed to be the land on the, the, the hill. It was supposed to be the flag bearers of democracy and everything that was supposed to be good and uh, about the world. Um, so we, we, we see that on one end. On the other end, we see groups that think that Afghanistan is their own personal mission and that uh, without them, Afghanistan cannot function. Um, Afghanistan would have done fine if the negotiation processes were handled uh, more responsibly, if uh, more time was given to the Afghans to find a consensus amongst themselves, if such an unconditional withdrawal wasn't done, if so many times the pressure that was built on the Taliban wasn't released so irresponsibly, um, if the leverage and legitimacy uh, concepts were handled better through this process. Um, so yeah, both sides aren't doing right by Afghanistan. Afghans can live without the West. They can live without foreign troop presence. It's just, you can't kick us uh, in the leg and say, well, you seem to not know how to walk, right? Mm -hmm. Obviously I can't walk because you kicked me. Uh, so um, the, I'll, I'll let you go deeper into that analogy. <laughs> <laughs> can you tell our listeners and viewers where they can follow your work? Yeah. Um, so um, I have been in Afghanistan for the past one and a half years. I am very active on Twitter. I do write to a lot of uh, news networks. Uh, they can see me quite often on international networks like Al Jazeera, I recently did a very wonderful, uh, I shouldn't say I did a wonderful, let's <laughs> take that, that back. Uh, um, I recently had a delightful uh, talk with BBC, actually a day before yesterday, uh, about the current situation in Afghanistan, my personal beliefs, my personal about where I would be if the fighting reaches Kabul. Um, so do give it a listen, but mostly I think if someone... Uh, follows me on Twitter, they'll find most of my work being posted by me there. Obedallah, thank you so much for joining us and sharing your thoughts. Thank you for having me, Rania. It was a pleasure.